always feel like after we have our time of worship, we could just stop there because <laughs> it's just so rich and so good. We're going to do something fun this morning. I want you everybody to stand up with me, please. We're going to go back to our childhood days and we're going to do a little nursery rhyme together. Okay? Ring around the rosies. Everybody knows it, right? When we say all fall down, be careful. Don't hurt anybody, but I want everybody to sit down at the same time. So everybody ready? You ready? You know this one? Here we go. Ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Wonderful. Wasn't that fun? Don't you feel like a kid again? Well, does anybody know where that rhyme is supposed to originate? You know. Really, what it was intended to communicate, many people believe, listen to this, this is interesting. Those words were intended to describe symptoms of what was one of the worst, probably the worst epidemic the world has ever known, bubonic plague. The ring is a skin lesion, a red circle on the skin, which was one of the first signs of the disease. Uh, That circle then became infected, and the posies in the pocket were a smell to overcome the torrid smell of that infectious disease. The ashes were the cremation of all the bodies, and the falling down was the magnitude of death. In fact, in the 14th century, that disease known as the as Black Death, killed almost one-third of the population of Europe. Estimates between 50 and 100 million people died from that disease. It it was so contagious that if you did as much as sneeze on somebody, you essentially killed them. Because it was that contagious and that incurable at the time. Many thought that this would be the end of human civilization, that it would eventually wipe out all humanity. Now, today, thankfully, we can cure that disease with a simple antibiotic. So we don't have that fear for that disease, but we do still have fears, don't we? In recent months, we've had issues of dreadful diseases like Ebola. And so even though we still have medicines that cure most diseases, there's a fear, and a legitimate one, that one day there will be a disease that those medicines can't affect. And we will have death in that same magnitude, even in our modern world. But the key to the success is not just developing new medicines. It's the ability to control the disease as quickly as possible, right? Which is why when that Ebola scare came up, you saw how quickly they responded to quarantine not just the person, but anybody, including their pets, who might have come in contact with that person. Because as bad as it is for one person to die from the disease, it's far worse to have an entire population die from that disease. And so the key is to to keep it quarantined as best as possible. In some ways, I believe that what Paul is speaking to in our passage this morning, he shares some of the very same desire and concern as it relates to the disease of selfish pride within the Corinthian church. I think he sees it as an epidemic, something that if not dealt with, that it can become disastrous. In fact, as we'll see in our passage, he's going to even look at the physical sickness and physical death that is occurring within the Corinthian church, and he's going to attribute some of that to the existence 
of the disease of sin that has run its course. It's the same thing that we deal with today. And the evidence is seen in disunity and division. And Paul is looking that with, at that within the Corinthian church and he's greatly concerned about the spread of this disease within the fellowship of the church. So as we think about this passage this morning, I want us to think about our modern response to something as scary as Ebola. I want us to look at the urgency with which Paul speaks to the Corinthian church. And I want us to understand with great clarity that you and I are not immune to this disease. That it affects us today just as much as it affected the Corinthians back then. And so we need to recognize the, the symptoms of this potential epidemic that we face right here within our church today, within our world today. And so we need to read this passage with great relevance to our lives today. Before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, there are certain things as we look in your word, you make it crystal clear that this is an issue of urgency. And today is one of those times. We see from the way Paul writes, from what he says, that this is important. That we need to listen. And that it really impacts our lives as much today as it did back then, and maybe, maybe even more so. So as we look at this, would you drive this home? Would you allow it to penetrate our hearts? Would you, in your miraculous, spirit-filled way, bring transformation into our lives so that we live, leave here differently than when we came here today? But that's a work of your hands. Nothing else can accomplish that. And so we entrust this prayer to you and ask that your will be done. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll pick up where we left off last in verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you will, read with me. It says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may, have, may become evident among you. Here Paul is highlighting, I believe, the evidence of the disease of selfish sin. And that is divisions within the church body. And did you notice the very sharp contrast with how Paul began this section as it relates in comparison to how he began Last week, look at verse 2 of chapter 11. Look at that again. Notice how he says, now I do praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions that I have delivered to you. We, we talked about that last week and it, it was kind of a, an encouragement with a condition. I, I praise you, but, but you need to continue to grow. I praise you for your faith in Christ and your trust in him. He lived with them. He knew of that faith and he was in encouraging them. But he was reminding them that they needed to continue to grow in that faith. To understand the goodness built into God's design. 
to grow in their understanding of that self-sacrificing love and, and that loving respect within the context of marriage. I praise you, but I encourage you to continue to grow. But then look at the contrast in verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. It's clearly quite a contrast between how he began that section last week and then this week. And why is that? Because divisions and disunity will devastate and ultimately destroy the church. These are symptoms of a disease that you don't just kind of sit back and monitor, see if it gets any worse. These require quick and certain action because the epidemic of this sin destroys multitudes. And so Paul wants us to be clear. There's no doubt that, that selfishness has impacted the individual believers within the Corinthian church. And that selfishness, as we talked about, has stunted their spiritual growth, which is why Paul said, look, you're still babes in Christ. You should be eating solid food, but you're still drinking milk. And we agree, as we look at this passage and this letter that Paul's written, that selfish pride is what's stunting their spiritual growth. But, but even worse than that, is the impact of that infection when it begins to infiltrate the fellowship of the church. And this is not the first time that Paul's brought up the concern. Go back to chapter 1 with me. Chapter 1, verse 10. And let's remember what he's already spoken of as it relates to this. In chapter 1, verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And then you'll look there, he goes on to identify the, the dividing lines of these factions based on personalities. I'm of Paulos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul. As we talked about that we talked about how they were being led not by the spirit of God but by aligning themselves with those who were like them they were posturing for a place of influence in order to promote their own personal agenda the the church had become more like a, a country club than a true committed community of believers now go over to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. Here, a second time, Paul brings up the same topic, and he says in verse 3, For you are still fleshly. How do you know that? Because there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? Jealousy and strife are, are deeds of the flesh. It's not fruit of the Spirit. And so Paul can look at that and say, The Spirit of God is not leading your life when these things are evident within your relationships with one another. They give evidence of a disease that is beginning to, to infiltrate this church body. And again, this is not something you just sit back and monitor, see if it gets any worse. This is something that requires quick and certain action. So go back to chapter 11 where we are this morning. Paul brings it up a third time. And the urgency is clear. I do not praise you. And why? Because 
your, your fellowship is actually doing more harm than good. I think the implication of Paul's words here is it would be better for you to quarantine that sin at home than bring it here and spread it around in the fellowship of the church. These divided relationships were a sign of a, of a deadly disease. And apart from the reconciliation that's found in Christ alone, this was the disease that would ultimately destroy the church and most importantly, it would devastate the very mission that God called and designed the church to fulfill in the first place. That's why this is important. So Paul narrows his focus on the source of this sin. Look at verse 11. I mean verse 20. He says, beginning in verse 20, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks and broke it, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sadly, this issue of disunity became most evident within the context of their celebration of communion. We celebrated communion together as a church family just last week. And we talked about the importance of that meal being centered on the, the work of Christ. But in the Corinthian church, it was what was revealing the disunity within their church body. Something that you need to know is that communion in this culture was celebrated in the context of a bigger meal. We might call it a potluck dinner, okay? For them, this was an important time where the church body gathered together. They shared a larger meal together, and within the context of that meal was the celebration of communion. The other thing that you need to remember that adds so much to this issue within the Corinthian church is what we've already talked about in terms of this shortage of food. Remember that? There's a famine and a drought within this region and in parts of the world that was supplied food into Corinth, and so there was a, a tremendous shortage of food that was in this place at this time. And despite that shortage, there was apparently a segment of the church body, likely those who are more wealthy, more influential, who took their place in the front of the line. And when they went through, they got their fill, as much as they felt like they deserved. And when it was all said and done, there were those who came behind them, and there was absolutely nothing left. In fact, to the point that they were left out of the communion meal altogether. It was as if some felt entitled to some level of preference, even if it excluded others. Look at verse 21 again, where he says, In your setting, each one takes his own supper first, 
One is hungry and another is drunk. One has way too much. The other has nothing. That's why Paul says your fellowship is actually causing more harm than good. And so Paul turns to the message of communion. And what I want us to understand about what he does here is the, the way he uses what communion is intended to communicate as a contrast to what is actually happening within the Corinthian church. That's his purpose. And I want you to notice what that looks like as he goes through this. He begins in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed. Why bring that up? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I've read this passage several times, and I've asked that question. Why bring up Judas at all? Why not just start with when he took the Lord's Supper, when he sat down with his disciples, this is what he did. Why bring up the betrayal? I believe in this context, it was because the betrayal was what was happening within the Corinthian church. They were the ones who were betraying the very intent of what God had instructed them to do in the first place. They turned their back on what Jesus had called them to do. Like Judas, they are motivated by selfish desires. They betray the one they are called to worship. And Paul goes on to, to speak of this contrast as he talks about the bread and, and reminds the Corinthians of what they, Jesus said. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. His body was delivered up for the forgiveness of our sins. We didn't deserve it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. And yet Jesus still did it for us. It was a self-sacrificing, life-giving love. Now, keep that picture. Because on the other side of that is the contrast of what is happening within the Corinthian church. Where they make their way to the front of the line. Why? Because they deserve it. They're recipients of God's grace. But they're unwilling to give it away. They're consuming what they think they've earned. What a contrast to what the meal was intended to represent in the first place. He goes on to talk about the cup. He says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. A new covenant. A new covenant creates a new community. A new people. Where the division walls are broken down. In fact, you don't need to turn there, but the passage that comes to mind is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to what it says. Therefore, remember you formerly, who, the Gentiles. Now, and keep in mind, the Corinthian church is primarily a Gentile church. So this is a message to them. Listen to what it says. You who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he himself is our peace. We who have been made both groups into one. And, and 
He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Paul is looking at this idea of what Christ accomplished by establishing peace and and breaking down the dividing wall. And what a contrast with the Corinthian church who's building them right back up. What a powerful message to see our lives in the light of the gospel in a way that reveals the selfishness of our heart. And that's Paul's purpose as he speaks to this communion meal and what it represents. So that it would humble those who listen to that message and examine their heart. Look at how he continues in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. For if he does not judge the body rightly, for this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep, which is a nice way of saying die. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining manners I shall arrange when I come. We've seen the evidence of the disease, which is manifest in the disunity of the church. We've seen that cause of the disease, which Paul points to as selfish pride. And now we see the consequence of the disease when it's not met with a repentant and humble heart. Paul says, taking communion in an unworthy manner makes one guilty of the body and blood of Christ. And we need to think about what does that mean? Let's start with this idea of an unworthy manner. What does it mean to to take it in an unworthy manner? Well, I think what Paul's communicating, based on what he's already said, is that an unworthy manner is a life that doesn't align with what you're proclaiming to be true. That's an unworthy manner. It's saying one thing, but living something different. Going through the motions so that you're doing it with your head, but you have no connection in your heart. That's the unworthy manner. The guilt is profaning a sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ that you are intended to proclaim. So Paul says, before you make that mistake, make sure you examine your heart. We're going to talk about why he points to that, but let me make this clear. When we do that honestly, when you and I examine our heart, there's something that every single one of us is going to find. We are just in much of God's forgiveness and grace in this very moment as we were the hour we first believed. Do you believe that? You see, that fact in and of itself is what unifies us, is we share in that same need of grace and forgiveness every single day. Nobody's arrived. Nobody's without sin. 
And, and we all come to the table with that very same need. We are equally dependent upon the riches of God's mercy and grace. That is a unifying truth within the body of Christ. This week I had a conversation with someone who said, you know, I'm sorry, I keep asking for guidance and keep uh, going back to that same place before the Lord. I, I have such weak faith. And my response was this, no, the fact that you keep coming back to the Lord in your weakness is a sign of great faith. In fact, it's those who don't think they need any help who don't have faith. It's that recognition of how much we need Christ that promotes and strengthens a deep and abiding faith. As someone once said, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And the idea here is, is that no one stands above the other. There's no one in greater or lesser need. We come equal, equally in need of God's grace and forgiveness. It's that humble recognition that should unite us. Division only begins when I believe I'm somehow different than you are. When I separate myself from you. When I see your sin is worse than mine. Doesn't exist. The heart of selfish pride that Paul says is the reason for some being weak and sick and dying. So we need to ask ourselves, so is he saying that unrepentant sin can become of such a burden that it could make you weak or sick and even cause death? The answer is yes. Yes. How many of y'all are familiar with that passage in James? It says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed, right? Let's look at that together. Go back to James. It's after Hebrews, before 1 Peter. I mean, yeah, before 1 Peter, James, chapter 5. We're going to back up before that verse that we're all familiar with, and we're going to look at the context of what he's communicating. So James chapter 5, let's start in verse 13. Is there anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. What we need to understand about the context of this passage is that they're not calling the elders because they have some unique power and ability to heal, heal this person. They are calling the elders for the purpose of confession. And the healing is in the repentance and humble confession before the elders, and before God. So that that burden of sin is forgiven, is lifted in that presence of humble repentance. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Now go back to our passage that we are looking at this morning. 
He says in verse 28 to examine yourself individually, I believe. Look at your heart. Look at your own heart. Find the reality of how much we need God's grace and forgiveness and how that unites us because we're on equal ground there. But then in verse 31, it goes corporate. He says, for if we judge ourselves rightly, we, plural, should not be judged. We, as a church, need to judge ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, are we being the body of Christ that God has called us to be? Or are we living just like the world around us? Look at there at the second part of verse 32. In order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. The new covenant community of Christ is designed to be set apart. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people of God who've been called out to proclaim the excellencies of his glorious might, his wisdom, his forgiveness, his grace. We're not a perfect people, but we are a humble people being perfected by the love of Jesus Christ. And if we continue in sin, God's not going to let us just go our own way as if there's no consequence to that. We talked about how disobedience provokes the jealousy of God. It is a jealous love that intends to rescue you, to protect you from that which intends to destroy you. And look no further than the cross itself. The greatest possible evidence of a self-sacrificing love to rescue you from the penalty of sin and death. God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. How we live as a church should reflect the truth of that reality. This is not about me and my faith, remember. This is about us and our faith. In order that we might display the manifold wisdom of God, not just to the world around us. Remember, to the heavenly realms. The church of God is the theater of God's grace. So that our love for one another, our unity and, and encouragement as we build one another up in that love proclaims the, the work of Christ in each of our lives and the power of that unity that comes through faith and trust in Him. That's what we've been called to. So we've kind of talked about the cause of the disease and what this disease looks like, but before we finish up, I want to make sure we're clear on the cure. Okay? And the reason that this is important is because nobody in this room is immune from a selfish heart. It impacts all of us. So when we look at what's happening in the Corinthian church, do not make the mistake of separating yourself and say, gosh, those, those poor Corinthians, boy, they weren't doing very good, were they? Sure glad I don't deal with selfish pride. We need to recognize that we are just as susceptible to the disease today as they were back then. So how do we keep it in check? And I want to give you four things. Write these down. It's very simple. Ready? Look back. Look in. Look up. Look around. Look back. Look in. Look up. And look around. Just as Paul did with the Corinthians, let me encourage you to look back. 
Look back at the cross of Jesus Christ. His body broken. His blood shed. Look at the cross as an invitation to experience the forgiveness and grace that we all are in need of. Trust that what he offers is ultimately what your heart longs for most. And and this is so important because you and I are alike in this way, and this is how we're alike. It's so easy for us to get consumed and overwhelmed with things that are happening in our present and become anxious and fearful for things happening yet future that we forget to look back and realize what's already been done to equip us for now and prepare us for later. So we, we need to look back at what Christ has accomplished on our behalf and be strengthened by that truth in our present and in our hope for the future. We need to look back. But we also need to look in. We need to look in and realize how much each and every one of us is in need of that grace and forgiveness, that mercy and hope. We need to look in and see... That nobody in this room is immune from the disease of selfish pride. It affects every single one of us. And I think at a core, it's the cause behind every single sin you can imagine. Selfish pride. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Graham and I had a conversation this week that I was so encouraged by because he came to me with a great question. He says, Dad, he says, I want to be able to walk with Christ and, and, and grow in my faith, but you know, I also want to be a good basketball player and improve there. And How do those two go together? And what he was asking was, how do I not segregate my life from the spiritual and the non-spiritual? Because shouldn't they be together? And we had a great conversation, and, and I gave an illustration. That Graham is a, a metaphor kind of guy like most people and if you give him a story it's easy to understand so I said you know so when you play just kind of think about God being in the stands and watching you and you want to honor him and how you perform and what you do and what your attitude and character is and then I went for a jog later that day and I realized as I rehearsed this uh, counsel that I gave him what a bad metaphor that was and I came back and I said Graham (laughs) that wasn't very good Let me go back and think of this differently. That example that I gave you in some ways suggests that God is separate and apart from you. That he's watching you from a distance and there's separation. I said, that doesn't doesn't work. God is in you. He has designed you. He has empowered you. And he is with you. We talked about that quote from Eric Little that said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Well, that's not because God's in the audience clapping. Way to go, Eric. Great job. You make me so proud. No. He's saying, what I understand is that God made me this way. He designed me this way. And when I live within his design, I feel the fullness of that good pleasure that he built into that. Because he is with me, he is in me, and he empowers me. So look back and realize that that's what was accomplished when Christ gave his life on the cross. So that as you look in and recognize how desperately you need him, you can be certain of how he fulfills every hope and desire in your heart, ultimately through relationship with him. And that's true for every single one of us. 
Look back, look in, and look up. Look up to the God who promises to never leave you and never forsake you. Look up to the God who promises you that his mercies are new every morning. (laughs) That his goodness never ceases. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. And then finally, look around. In fact, I want you to do that. Look to your right, to your left. Look around behind you. You need to look into the eyes of the people that are in this church body because those are your blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the new covenant community in Christ. Those are sons and daughters of the one true king. We are his people, set apart for his purposes. And he designed us to be unified with one another in great love. So look around and stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the sake of the gospel. Look back, look in, look up, and look around. And when the church of God does that, then the enemy needs to look out. Because there is no force in this world that is greater than the power of God at work in the people of God, fulfilling the purpose of God to the praise and glory of his name. That's what this is all about. That's what we're striving towards. That's what our hope is. That's what our commitment should be. And that's the people we want to be. So let me pray for us, and then Jason wants to introduce you to some folks this morning. God, thank you so much for the promises of your word and for the urgency in which you so clearly deal with that which plagues all of us, the disease of selfishness and sin. But thanks for the hope within that recognition of the forgiveness and grace that we find in you. Thanks for the reminder that we all stand on that level ground before the cross and that we need you desperately and equally. And in fact, we need each other. We need to encourage each other to love and and to good deeds as a part of God's family called to fulfill your mission for the praise and glory of your name. May we be faithful to do that which you have called us to and be committed to protecting what you have made possible through your death on the cross on our behalf. We pray this in your name. Amen.